0: Welcome back to Who's Talking. He's the president's man for all things planes, trains, and automobiles. Armed with billions of dollars in new funding, some are calling him the most powerful secretary of transportation in U.S. history. And as the midterm elections approach, he's also the D.C. official Democrats want to be seen with on the campaign trail. You've had a few clunkers in recent years, You you think? That's not perception, that's reality. I am feeling stronger than ever now in my life. How would you rate yourself as a chef? Why, I'm not doing that with you, Christopher Wilder. Secretary Pete Buttigieg, welcome. Thank you for coming. Good to talk with you again. Good to be with you. So you are reportedly the most requested surrogate from, by Democratic candidates running in the mer- midterms, even more so than Vice President Harris. As you travel the country, what are the chances that Democrats will hold onto the House and the Senate?
1: Well, look, I can't get into the campaign side too much because I'm here in an official capacity. But let me say this. We have a great story to tell as an administration. And part of what I do, uh, whether I'm in Washington or whether I'm out on the road, is try to connect the dots between the decisions that the president has made, the leadership of the Biden-Harris administration, what we've been able to do working with partners in Congress, including, by the way, across the aisle, whenever that's possible, and what it actually means in communities, why that leads to a new airport terminal, a bridge that's been out of service for years, finally being fixed. Things that are making a difference in people's lives along with good paying jobs. And I think that's a story we need to keep telling because as usual in politics, there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of negativity, there's a lot of effort to divide and to distract. And one of the things I love about my particular set of responsibilities in transportation is, it's specific, it's concrete, and it's, an area where people understand what it means in their everyday lives.
0: So if Democrats lose, if Republicans take over the House or take over the Senate, does that indicate, using your words, that division and distraction won?
1: Well, look, uh, our job is to work with everybody who's willing to work with us. And we'll do that whoever's in office. But what I'll say is working with a Democratic majority in the House uh, and in the Senate, and again, a handful of Republicans who were willing to cross over and vote with us on things like this this infrastructure law. We've been able to demonstrate that that the president's theory of change, that the fact that you can actually put together a coalition to get big things done, uh, is working. There will always be the distraction. There will always be the division. There will always be the noise. But we have to make sure that we're grounded in actual facts at a time when there's a lot of fiction going on. and And we've gotta continue to make clear the stakes of the choices that are being made in Washington for people's everyday lives, especially when it comes to issues like cost of living.
0: Well, you say cost of living. It's interesting because facts are that voters are the biggest concern is the economy and inflation. Prices are up 8.2 percent over last year. The Fed, Federal Reserve has raised interest rates three percentage points since March. Uh, Here's House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy and all that.
1: When you go to the store, eggs are higher. You've got milk higher. Your gasoline price is higher. It is the Democrat policies that brought that.
0: Question. Why shouldn't voters hold the Democrats, who are in control of the White House, in control of the House, in control of the Senate, why shouldn't they hold you responsible?
1: Well, very simple. Because what we're doing is helping with the cost of living and because what House Republicans are proposing will hurt. Uh, what Kevin McCarthy and his colleagues have proposed is to strip away the Inflation Reduction Act. That would mean higher costs for prescription drugs. It would mean higher costs of energy. Remember, they sided with big pharmaceutical companies and against the American people when we pushed to let Medicare finally negotiate prescription drugs, which is a big part of the cost of living. You'll notice when you see him and his colleagues on television, the one thing they don't talk about is anything they would do to fix it, anything they would do to improve this situation. We know that the cost of living and inflation is a challenge here in the U.S., just as it is around the world in the wake of COVID. But we also know that the measures we're taking to make life easier, to to make budgets easier for American families is the right path. And and the other way, their way, of more tax cuts for the wealthy, Uh, economists believe that could actually make inflation worse.
0: Let's look at what the Biden administration and the Democratic Congress have done over the last two years. You passed the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan. Estimates are that boosted inflation three percentage points. This year you passed, you talked about the Inflation Reduction Act, the Nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office says that will have a quote, negligible effect on inflation this year, and they say next year as well. Meanwhile, because inflation is so out of control, uh, every major forecaster says, as the Fed fights inflation, we're headed for a recession. Well, first of all, let's remember what the American Rescue
1: Plan and the infrastructure bill have done. They're a big part of why unemployment is under 4%. When the president took office, we were staring down the, the very real possibility of a severe recession, possibly even leading to a depression, if we didn't act. Now, the United States has not been immune to the pressures on prices, the inflationary prices that have been happening here and around the world. But there's no way that uh, following the House Republican playbook of raising tax, and and the Senate Republican playbook of of raising taxes on uh, poor and middle income people, continuing to lower taxes and cut taxes on, on wealthy and the corporations, some of which pay zero, uh, siding with big pharmaceutical companies and doing nothing to hold oil companies accountable for the absurd profitability, even relative to uh, a price of oil that's come down, th- there's no way that's a-, a winning formula. So anytime anybody wants to debate what to do about inflation, I'm here for that debate. But we have heard nothing from the other side, well, by the way, of anything some,
0: actionable. Res- respectfully, sir, you have heard something, which is that put spending more than $3 trillion in federal spending at a time when demand so outstrips supply because of supply chain problems- Well, but but, but, but hold on, right? Let me me ask the question. That that spending $3 trillion added, boosted demand, boosted inflation, uh, that the Inflation Reduction Act isn't gonna actually reduce inflation for the next couple of years, and that because you were so slow, you, the administration, the Federal Reserve, everybody, in terms of dealing with inflation, now you've got to overcorrect, and we're going to get a recession. Well, look, the investment- formula for success?
1: The investments in the infrastructure law are investments in the supply side. Yeah, the issue is demand came back, people got back to work, there was money in Americans' pockets, and supply struggled to keep up. All right, that's the basic root of the inflationary pressure that we have here. But a big part of why supply has struggled to keep up is, for example, on the transportation side- The fact that our supply chains and our transportation infrastructure has needed to be updated for years. So uh, do we regret rescuing the American economy? No. Do we regret the actions that brought unemployment below 4%? No.
0: Do we regret 8% inflation? Nobody likes inflation. And the fact that the administration called it transitory for months when everybody else was saying, people like uh, Larry Summers were saying, you got to start dealing with us. Look, obviously, inflation is a major concern. It's
1: uh, The president's identified it as his top economic priority. But uh, again, I've heard nothing, l- literally nothing, by way of concrete proposals from the other side on what to do. it. And what we're doing concretely is creating more breathing room for American families by cutting the cost of everything from energy to prescription drugs.
0: OK, let's talk about your day job <laughs> as secretary of transportation, and let's start small. We have some video we're going to put up here, which I really enjoy. This is you leaving a meeting at the White House by bicycle to go back to your department as the Secretary of Transportation. Question, how often do you ride a bike around Washington?
1: You know, probably not as often as I should. I like to practice what I preach, uh, and I like to, to be on two wheels. So especially as we've gotten out of the kind of swampiest summer days, I, I try to be on the bike more often. I'd be lying if I said that's my daily commute, although it depends on the week.
0: And And why do people, first of all, is it a security issue? I mean, do you have people traveling with you as you as you go on a bike, down the bike path? Yeah, I think it's a little unconventional for a security detail, but, but they figure it out. And do drivers ever look around and see the Secretary of Transportation in the bike lane <laughs> and honk? Yeah, I get some funny looks
1: sometimes. But you know what else, uh, especially that one time when... Uh, uh, when I, I think it was a cabinet meeting that, that I uh, uh, rode home from, I had to stop and wait for the uh, security details vehicles to catch up uh, because uh, at rush hour downtown Washington, D.C., you're actually quicker on a bike than you are in a car.
0: I thought you were going to say you were waiting for them because they, are, they were on their bikes and they were slower moving <laughs> and you, you're in better no, they, shape. They as they I can suspect hang. may be the case. So, what was your biggest surprise taking over transportation? I know you've been the mayor of a city, but, but this has got to have been a lot of new territory for you.
1: Well, certainly the range of what the department does. There's trains, planes and automobiles, uh, the kinds of things I would interact with the department on back when I was mayor. But we oversee the pipelines and hazardous material safety administration, the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, commercial space travel licensing. There are so many elements. To what the department's in in charge of. So uh, obviously there are a lot of things to get on top of in this job. I guess the other thing that's different is is just the nature of the federal interagency. When I was mayor, I I understood all of the different corners of of the administration that I led. It was small enough I could get my arms around it. Uh, Here we spend a lot of time, I think anybody in federal service does, navigating our own organization, because it can be so complex. And I think our job is to take all of that machinery of government and make it actually work for people, get results that are gonna make people better off in everyday life. And sometimes that means uh, working through very official channels, rulemakings, authorities, budgets. Sometimes it just means using the visibility of the office. Airlines is a good example. We're doing a lot on enforcement. We're doing a lot on rulemaking. But one of the most effective things that we've been able to do It took less than two weeks. It was just transparency. We we realized that if we just put an easy comparison chart on the USDOT website of how airlines treat customers, uh, they might uh, behave a little differently. Wrote a letter to the CEO, said, hey, uh, I'm going to put this up on on our website in a week or two. So next week would be a really good time to up your game in terms of your customer service commitments. And they did. We went from zero of the top 10 airlines to, I think, nine out of 10 committing that they would at least get you a voucher for a hotel or a meal when you got stuck. So that, to me, was a lesson and how to use the the pulleys and levers of government not just on the official side but just the bully
0: pulpit in order to get
1: results for people
0: have you studied traffic I, I, the reason i ask this is how many times have you driven along on a road and there's suddenly a backup and you know you crawl along for 10 or 15 minutes and then it starts to move and then it moves faster and there's no obvious thing there was no accident that was whatever and i think to myself why was that back up there? Now, I assume there's got to be a science to traffic.
1: Oh, yeah, there's an entire science to this. Uh, and we have a lot of research partners. We have our own research institution, the Volpe Institute, which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, it, it's really interesting. I, I could geek out on this for a couple of hours if, if
0: we had time. But a lot <laughs> please, of it. Please don't. I I that promise would, be, that would be a bad traffic jam. But,
1: but a lot of it is is uh, just human nature, human psychology. The fact that if if even one of us gets distracted, that can kind of cascade through us. The fact that we uh, pause and look at something odd or or, uh, or an accident or something uh, uh, when, when we pass it by. The, the, uh, the ways that we behave behind the wheel, as in general, as human beings, are not exactly orderly and predictable. And, and part of what we try to do is make at least traffic more orderly and predictable. That's what traffic lights do, that's what speed limits do. Uh, but one of the challenges we have right now is you have more and more people in the country, more and more people on the road. Is how to be smarter about that. For example, uh, it turns out that sometimes when you just when you got a lot of traffic on a roadway and you just uh, add a lane or two, all you get is more traffic because it, it actually makes more people want to uh, drive on that road, and then you right back where you were. And so we're trying to be smarter as a country about uh, when do you add to the capacity do you have. Uh, that you have, or when are you in a situation where you can't pave your way out of the problem, and the real answer is better transit, or more alternatives, or a better design grid. These are the kinds of things that I, I love sinking my teeth into, because we have the tools to do something about it with, and frankly, even the existing infrastructure we have, we're not using it as intelligently as we could be. You're kind of a nerd,
0: aren't you? I love this stuff, I
1: am, <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, so many kids, I think for for a reason that I can't quite explain, from, from early childhood, get just fascinated with uh, anything related to transportation, right? Trucks, cars, planes, trains, boats, all of that. I mean, uh, you know, half the kids' books we have at home are, are about these kinds of things. So there's something, I think, very human about, uh, about taking an interest in this. And then professionally, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Also because I, I see how much of a difference it makes in people's lives, the, the jobs associated with, with construction and transportation, but, but also just the fact that the less time you spend worrying about transportation, The more time you get to spend on other things in your life that matter to you, the more you get to be with your kids, the more you get to uh, be productive at work.
0: You've been traveling the country for most of the last year. You've got that $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, and you've had the great job of handing out these oversized checks. (laughs) We've got them up here on the screen. Uh, Big checks for roads and bridges and other projects. How much does it bother you when a Republican member of Congress who voted against the infrastructure bill now rushes to get that big check because it's going to benefit the roads and bridges in his district. Yeah, it's really something.
1: I mean, we'll get a letter saying, you know, this this funding really ought to be used for this project. And I'm thinking, really? I remember when when you uh, called this garbage. You said it was socialism. You said it was a waste. But but now that, that that your district has a need, suddenly you're all for it. But you know, the the truth is that's just politics and. Our job is not to get hung up on all that. I think it's fair game to remind people every now and then. Uh, but, but our job is to deliver results for people. And I'm, I'm, you know, if, if your neighborhood is at risk because an ambulance can't get to it, because the bridge that goes to your neighborhood has a load limit on it because it's been in disrepair for so many years, I don't care whether you, your member of Congress happens to be Republican or Democrat, voted with us or against us. You need an improvement. We're going to get you that improvement.
0: What do you think of Elon Musk? A uh, Very interesting guy.
1: Uh, very intelligent. Um, agree on some things, disagree on some other things. But I'll say this, uh, he's built a company that is the biggest maker of electric vehicles in the country, and he handles a pretty big part of our space program now, too. Uh,
0: The reason I ask is, it is, it seemed like the administration has had a somewhat contentious relationship with Elon Musk. Uh, He says that, that you guys should get out of the way when it comes to electric vehicles. The tax incentives are unnecessary. Uh, He's now under investigation by the Justice Department, according to reports, because supposedly he has made claims about his self-driving vehicles that may be exaggerated. And I wonder, I mean, is there a feeling that he's a problem? It it was interesting. The president went to Detroit and talked to Mary Barra about electrifying cars. And I think most people, if you asked him, well, who's been the leader in electrifying cars, I'd say Elon Musk and Tesla. Yeah. I mean, look, obviously it's
1: it's puzzling to say the least when you have a company that cooperates with the federal government, benefits from federal subsidies, and then later on you have leadership saying, oh, federal government should get out of the way and have nothing to do with this. But frankly, that's happened a lot to uh, uh, with, with people in the business world. Uh, I, I try to really think of this in terms of calling balls and strikes. When uh, an industry partner is helpful, Uh, We want to work with them. And when they're causing a problem or when they have uh, gotten on the wrong side of any kind of rule, uh, then we have our enforcement responsibilities. And and we have to do both at the same time, whether it's a high-profile company uh, or a company nobody's heard of. That's how we approach these things. So I think what's especially interesting on the EV side is nobody can can deny the extraordinary role that Tesla has played in really catapulting the U.S. into, into the EV era. At the same time, I think it's fascinating and compelling to see some of the most traditional or at least traditionally recognized auto companies, GMs, Fords, uh, Stellantis, which owns Chrysler, making uh, this change as well. And it's very different if you're a company like a Tesla or Rivian that that has been EV the whole time. And we're not going to put a thumb in the scale on the scale in terms of that competition but between different companies. Uh, We are going to make sure, though, that uh, every company is doing the right things in terms of rules and regulations, especially safety regulations. As,
0: uh, as you travel around the country handing out these outsized checks, reporters have noticed uh, there's another part to your message. Take a look.
1: The fight for racial equity has always been inseparable from conversations about transportation policy. Civil rights and equity are inseparable from questions of transportation. We also know that this is a matter of equity. It's also about equity.
0: There's no question that race and where roads are put and how it divides white communities from black communities is a legitimate part of transportation policy. Some reporters have also noted you had some problems getting support, getting known in the black community, in your 2020 presidential campaign and they wonder if by emphasizing racial equity as much as you are that's trying to shore up that support or build it for a future political run
1: look in this town people look at everything politically i get that but this is the right thing to do there is no question about the role that past road construction has played in dividing dividing white communities from black communities in cutting off where the, the whole point of transportation is to connect And what's striking to me about this moment is we have a chance to do something about that. Uh, Indeed, a once in a lifetime chance. And and it's not just about what we build and where, which is a huge part of it. It's also about how we build. We're moving a trillion dollars through the American economy in this infrastructure uh, act. About half of that is transportation. The business opportunity alone is colossal. And in a country where the racial wealth gap is a real, serious, persistent, societally costly problem, Uh, I think that making sure that minority-owned businesses have a fair shot at at these opportunities uh, could make a generational impact. So I'm excited about the difference that this is going to make. Do you still want to be president? I wanted to be president enough to run for president, uh, although I didn't ever run because it was a thing I wanted to have. Uh, I ran because there was a moment where I thought what I had to offer matched what the moment called for. And that's how I think about running for office. I've used that process to run for office before. And I've used that process, that decision process, to decide not to run for office before. And I I know it sounds like the right thing to say politically. It is the right thing to say politically. It's also true that I don't know what the future looks like or whether those stars will ever align uh, in the future. What I do know is uh, I already have a job, and it's a great job. We already have a president, and I believe we have a great president, and and I'm proud to be part of a team led by the president and the vice president. But you're
0: certainly not saying that the the moment and the man might not match up
1: again. I'm not ruling out. I'm 40. (laughs) I I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I do know that that, uh, I've been entrusted with this amazing opportunity and responsibility to help shape the infrastructure we're going to be living with and, and working with and counting on for the rest of our lives.
0: There are figures, some substantial figures in the Democratic Party, who say quite bluntly that Joe Biden should not run again for president in 2024. Let's listen to a few of them. We need a new generation. We need new blood, period, across the Democratic Party, in the House, the Senate, and the White House. I do not think that Donald Trump should run in 2024. I do not think that Joe Biden should run in 2024. I'm sick and tired of that generation being in power. We've got to move on. Are they wrong?
1: The decision is very much above my pay grade. There's one person who gets to make that decision. Uh, but what I will say is that this president and this administration have been repeatedly underestimated and have repeatedly delivered. I mean, it's hard to think of any period since FDR when there has been this much legislative success. And think about that with a 50-50 Senate. Any one of the pieces of what this president's accomplished The Inflation Reduction Act alone and what that's going to do for our climate. The infrastructure bill alone. The reduction in child poverty from from the rescue plan. Finally getting veterans the benefits they deserve when they were exposed to burn pits. Any one of those pieces could be a legacy-defining achievement in an
0: ordinary presidency. So you don't think there's a need for generational change?
1: Look, I belong to a generation that uh, that is very excited about the future, and I'm excited about having a lot of colleagues and partners from my generation uh, who are on Capitol Hill in Congress, in the administration. Uh, but I also don't think any one generation uh, has a monopoly on good ideas.
0: But or- Well, okay, let me pick up on that, because here we have, you are, you are, announcing your candidacy for president in 2019 and talking about what the country needed. A moment like that calls
1: for hopeful and audacious voices from communities like ours. And yes, it calls for a new generation of leadership in this country. Well, (laughs) the president believed enough in that idea of empowering a new generation that he's invited people like me to play roles like this in this administration.
0: I Come on, come, come on, come on, Mr. Secretary. I mean, what you were sort of saying there, I think you were saying, was Joe Biden is too old at almost 78 and that we needed generation not as Secretary of Transportation, but as president. And now you're saying he's not going to be too old at almost 82? Let me say this. A lot of people in
1: 2019, probably including me, would not have looked at uh, then-Vice President Biden and thought that he was going to be the figure to deliver the kind of transformational accomplishments that we have since seen. Uh, But if you look at what happened, if you look at the aspirations that this presidency, that this administration have set, it's extraordinary. It rivals any of the most audacious things that several other candidates, including me, put forward in that race. And America is the better for it.
0: Can I bring up one last subject with you? Sure. You and your husband, Chaston, August of last year, 2021, became the parents of twins, a little boy and a little girl. And at the height of the supply chain crisis, you took off two months of Ferretta leave and you took some heavy fire about that from some Republicans. The guy was gone. Okay. the guy was not working because why? He was trying to figure out how to chest feed. If you're the secretary of transportation, you get your ass to work. I understand the the benefits of parental leave. The question is, even for cabinet secretaries dealing with crises that affect the American family.
1: So, first of all, I was always there to deal with anything that needed my attention. Secondly, I want to make very clear, I'm accustomed to working very very hard. When I was mayor in this job, when I was deployed to Afghanistan, before that, when I was in business, I'm used to working very, very hard. I have never worked as hard as I did during those weeks uh, that Chasten and I were taking care of our newborn, premature infant twins. My workday started about 3 a.m. And it was beautiful, rewarding work. But there's this attitude that's still out there that parenting is not work, that it's some kind of vacation. And I think part of my responsibility, include right alongside my, my professional and policy responsibilities, which I never set aside. Part of my responsibility also is to send a message that our entire society should take parenting more seriously, that moms and dads should both have an option for parental leave and should take it when it's available. But let me also say, There were times when I left the ICU bedside of my son fighting for his life and went into another room and shut the door behind me and opened the laptop and set a background with a couple of flags so nobody in the Zoom was distracted by a background that was obviously a hospital room and got on with my job. I will put my work ethic against that of any of my
0: critics any day. Forget the politics, on a personal level, what are the biggest lessons from being the parents of these two precious little babies for the last year?
1: Well, it changes you. It changes you in in so many ways. Uh, It makes you aware of how dependent you are on other people because you turn to uh, uh, family and friends for everything from advice to to last minute help. Uh, It changes your relationship to the future because you have to think about every decision. Certainly when you're involved in policy, you think about how's it going to affect my son and my daughter who will be asking me, I think in the 2050s, whether whether I did enough on things like uh, climate change or or democracy or any of the other things that are gonna shape the country they live in. Um, And and it adds just a dimension of of joy to your life that that I can't even describe, things I can't believe. For example, I I can't sing and I'm not much of a dancer. And so occasionally at 7 in the morning, I'm asking myself, what am I doing while I'm singing and dancing in order to keep my son entertained while he's eating his bananas? Uh, just to, to, you know, get him kind of energized, you know, across the kitchen counter, just thinking, like, what, what has happened to me? What, what are you seeing? Uh So <laughs> there's this song um, that once you hear it, it will never get out of your mind. It's as part of this uh, Eurovision, you know, the, the, the big music yes, contest. the, the big
0: musical uh, give, song contest.
1: Give that wolf a banana. It's this absurd song
0: uh, that... You want to give uh, us a couple of bars of that?
1: For that, you'll have to participate in breakfast time in our household. <laughs> but let's just say it's very catchy. Our kids love it for whatever reason. And it's it, it became part of the breakfast ritual when I was trying to get the bananas... Uh, I thought you were going to say baby
0: shark or something like I'm that. I'm sure
1: that's next. That's that's just a matter of time. Okay,
0: I, here's the toughest question. Forget all of that other stuff. Between you and Chester, as these kids grow, get a little older and a little more challenging. Who's gonna be the disciplinarian and who's the soft touch that they will go to first?
1: Oh, that I don't know. I, I think only experience can can show that. I'd like to think I can hold the line. A line. I'm a very disciplined, structured person, but I don't know with those two, uh, I, might, I might turn out to be the pushover. I'll, I'll have to check in with you in 10 years about that.
0: Mr. Secretary, thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you about everything from policy, to parent it. It's
1: a pleasure. Thank you.
0: President Biden's trillion-dollar infrastructure law has given Pete Buttigieg the tools, as he says, to transform America. Like the 1950s interstate highway project under President Eisenhower, the decisions he makes now about what roads and bridges we build could shape our neighborhoods and how we get around them for generations to come. Thank you for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want right here on HBO Max. To find out who's talking next. Now, streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN Flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com/slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.